Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind the scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. I am Shreya Gupta, along with our newest member, Michael Vu. I am excited to announce our collaboration with Annals of Surgical Oncology and Society of Surgical Oncology called the Landmark Series. This is an effort that was recently published in ASO by Dr. Kelly McMasters. And today we are very excited to launch the series on Behind the Knife podcast. So who better than the editor himself as our debut guest? Dr. McMasters joins us today. He's the professor and chair of the Department of Surgery at University of Louisville. He's also the director of his multidisciplinary melanoma clinic. He received his MD, PhD from Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, followed by general surgery residency at University of Louisville, surgical oncology fellowship at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. McMasters has been the president of SSO, uh, Society of Surgical Chairs, Southern Surgical Association, and many more. In 2019, he was appointed as the director of the American Board of Surgery. In 2018, he he was named the editor-in-chief of Annals of Surgical Oncology. His lab and his research interests are funded by NIH in the field of cancer gene therapy, melanoma biomarkers, and more more recently, immunotherapy. He has authored over 450 peer-reviewed publications, in addition to multiple book chapters. Dr. McMasters, welcome to Behind the Knife, and thank you for being um, our guest on our podcast. Let's begin our, our podcast with an introduction to the Landmark series. I'm going to start off with a quote from him, Dr. McMaster's um, intro of landmark series in ASO. It goes, it is fundamentally important for all cancer surgeons to understand the progression of evidence that has led to the current treatment recommendations for each type of solid tumor. This includes clinical trials of surgical techniques as well as adjuvant therapies. While the earliest clinical trials in cancer treatment may now seem like ancient history to some, they are the cornerstones of our specialty. I really um, consider that this code really captures the essence of this collaboration that we are going to kick off today. So Dr. McMasters, thank you for being here again. I would like to start off by asking you, how do you think of this series and what are the goals of ASO in launching this um, this series in ASO this year? So thank you once again for inviting me to talk about the landmark series in Annals, Annals of Surgical Oncology. As I thought about all of the rapidly progressing evidence that informs our treatment decisions, and in the course of training residents and fellows and students and talking to many around the country, it became evident that there's really a need to uh, educate people on the key evidence, the, the building blocks that have allowed us to make progress in the field of surgical oncology, both surgical treatment and adjuvant therapy for our patients. And for people to understand what that evidence is and how it has progressed over time 
and uh, change the way we treat patients for the better. It's very difficult for even in one narrow subspecialty of surgical oncology, sometimes breast cancer, for example, for any one person to be able to spout off names and numbers of the clinical trials and, and remember exactly what they meant and what they showed and why they were designed. Uh, and we needed a place for people to be able to uh, learn this information, a place to refer back to, to refresh your memory and see that progression of evidence. While in the field of cancer, um, many people have sought over the years to find replacements for the gold standard randomized clinical trial as uh, the type of evidence as really the gold standard of evidence that we use for changing practice. Really nothing holds up to, uh, to the same standard as, uh, as randomized clinical trials. So while there are other forms of evidence that are important and that may have helped change practice, sometimes it's meta-analyses or, or sometimes it's not randomized trials, but we wanted a place for each area, each disease site, each type of cancer, and sometimes it's multiple articles in the landmark series to really define what is the landmark evidence, clinical trials and other evidence that have defined the way we treat patients today and may help us to define the path for where we need to be tomorrow. So we see this as um, basically a review of the evidence to date, but this project will never end. The evidence now is changing faster than ever. Clinical trials are being performed um, more and more rapidly, and as more and more evidence is gathered and things change, uh, we hope to keep people up to date in uh, and a, find a place in Annals of Surgical Oncology, the landmark series, where they will always be able to go and and find this information, review it, and uh, and summarize it. So, Dr. McMasters, one thing about Behind the Knife is our listeners span all levels of training. They span all surgical disciplines, including but certainly not limited to surgical oncology, uh, and they span the, the whole globe. In your view, who is this series geared towards? How will people benefit from following this series of papers, uh, as well as the companion podcast episodes we are releasing? So the... The beautiful thing about the Landmark series as the first uh, many articles have emerged, I think, is that this really appeals to those who are learning this for the first time, students and residents and fellows. And for those of us who have been at this for a while, it's very refreshing and appealing to go back and review and, and, and reminisce in some cases about those clinical trials and experiences and what we used to do and why we have changed our practice, what we do now differently than we used to do and how that occurred. And some of those stories are ones that can help uh, perhaps provide some uh, encouragement and motivation to uh, younger people like yourselves to uh, be the people who will discover the next uh, pieces of evidence that will improve patient care for the better, improve our translational science, uh, improve our understanding of the biology of cancer, 
that will be able to be translated into better treatments for patients. It is awesome to hear your enthusiasm for the project. Very exciting. So let's go ahead and jump right into the meat of the episode, the melanoma landmark papers. And I want to start by discussing a trial that you were actually the principal investigator of, the multi-institutional Sunbelt melanoma trial, which looks like it was quite an endeavor. You tested the role of interferon alpha 2b in patients with a single positive sentinel lymph node who were treated with a completion lymph node dissection. So can you begin by telling us what led up to you developing this research question and experimental protocol? How had prior research brought us to the Sunbelt melanoma trial? Well, uh, this all started... 1996 was an eventful year in the in the field of melanoma in 1996 we had the results of the intergroup melanoma trial led by dr charles balch which suggested that some subgroups of patients may benefit from elective lymph node dissection interferon alpha 2b in the ecog 1684 trial was shown to result in a survival advantage when given in the, in the adjuvant setting for patients with high-risk melanoma. Also were the first reports from Doug Rankin's group and others looking at molecular staging of lymph nodes, of sentinel lymph nodes, using polymerase chain reaction, PCR, basically detecting molecular evidence of melanoma-specific messenger RNAs in those lymph nodes which appeared to correlate with a higher risk of the patients of recurrence and death from melanoma. So the other thing that happened in 1996 after sentinel lymph node biopsy was still pretty new, remember, uh, and we would routinely see patients who had, uh, let's say, an intermediate thickness uh, melanoma, and we did a sentinel node biopsy, we found one sentinel node with one speck of cancer seen on immunohistochemistry in one sentinel node. Then we would do a completion lymph node dissection and 85% of the time or so we found no additional positive lymph nodes. So there were questions with all of this information swirling around. The other thing that happened was that I had just finished my surgical oncology fellowship in July of, of 1996, was sitting in my office with a blank computer screen and no patients yet, and time on my hands. So I began to ask some questions, and I began to talk to people. And pretty soon, this snowballed into the idea that there were several questions we might be able to answer. The first is interferon. We were giving it to patients, any patient with a positive sentinel node at this point now, but these patients had one little speck of cancer in one lymph node, and many of them we thought were cured just by doing surgery. The question was really whether interferon was more effective for patients with really minimal tumor burden. Maybe these are the patients who benefited the most. The ECOG 1684 trial included patients with very advanced nodal metastasis, a lot of patients with palpable nodal disease. Maybe they just had two had, had disease that was too far advanced to really benefit from the interferon. And if we treated them earlier, uh, it would have a, a greater therapeutic advantage for them. Um, the other question to be answered was really whether we could use this new PCR testing of sentinel lymph nodes to detect melanoma-specific 
messenger RNA, basically to detect submicroscopic amounts of melanoma metastasis in the sentinel node that we could detect by molecular means but couldn't see under the microscope, whether we could identify those high-risk stage one and two patients by this molecular staging, and maybe those were patients who would benefit from more aggressive therapy, completion lymph node dissection, or interferon. So that was the impetus for the Sunbelt Melanoma Trial, and uh, we organized it, and um, and really it was a surgical oncologist-led effort that, that snowballed with participation from 79 uh, centers around North America. And uh, we, we think helped us to understand a lot more about uh, melanoma and adjuvant therapy. Can you tell us about the results of your trial? What, what did we learn? So one important thing that we learned, uh, which is a lesson that has been learned many times, is that sometimes uh, what appears to be promising in single institution trials when subjected to the rigors of multi-institutional randomized studies doesn't uh, pan out quite the same. Even though we did rigorous polymerase chain reaction testing with four different markers uh, with uh, quality control where the positive controls were always positive and the negative controls were always negative and everything appeared to be very promising, much as was later seen uh, in the uh, MSLT2 uh, trial, when subjected to large multi-center trials, the PCR ch- testing was not prognostically significant. In other words, those who had a positive PCR test didn't have any higher risk of recurrence or death than those who had a negative PCR test. So two big, large clinical trials failed to, at least under the conditions that we used, to substantiate a a role for molecular staging of the lymph nodes. And what we think was happening, because we detected positive PCR, excuse me, positive PCR signature in in half the patients and in the bloodstream too. And uh, we believe based upon this and a lot of other uh, subsequent studies that uh, others have done is that probably routine traffic of, trafficking of melanoma cells through the sentinel node is and into the bloodstream is a regular event. Of course, most of those cells don't become metastases because of all the things that a cancer cell has to do to become a metastasis and, and all the ways it has to evade the immune system and uh, other anti-cancer mechanisms. But probably uh, that may explain why we were detecting what we thought were real detection of melanoma cells that did did not have prognostic significance. Uh, And of course, under those circumstances, doing a lymph node dissection or giving interferon didn't improve any outcomes. That was uh, protocol B of the Sunbelt Melanoma trial was a, a separate part of the trial. But the key part was really to identify whether patients with a single microscopically positive sentinel lymph node as their only metastatic disease would benefit from interferon or not. All these patients had a completion lymph node section. And the answer was no. Although the study uh, was uh, somewhat short of its accrual goals and uh, somewhat underpowered to detect uh, small differences in survival, nevertheless, 
there was no there were no trends for an improvement in survival with interferon. In fact, numerically, the patients who got interferon uh, did worse. So it was a negative result in in two ways. PCR testing uh, was not helpful and interferon did not appear to be helpful. Of course, there were two subsequent studies of adjuvant interferon that provided conflicting results and interferon was always controversial in terms of its absolute benefit, toxic, expensive, and difficult therapy for patients to take with uh, the evidence pointing to, including Sunbelt Melanoma trial, very little, if any, survival benefit, uh, which, uh, is part of the reason we no longer use that uh, as an adjuvant therapy in, in, in most places. The other thing to know is that at the time, this PCR staging of lymph nodes, molecular staging, this took off, uh, you know, as, as new ideas sometimes do, uh, uh, to, it became popular to the point where people were treating patients off protocol outside of a clinical trial based upon PCR results, because everyone was convinced that the PCR testing was going to define a very high risk group of patients that would be likely to recur. How could they not? We found cancer cells in their lymph node. What turns out that was uh, not a correct notion. And I think you summarized it so well. This field of cancer, especially right now, and cancer therapeutics are evolving at like at a lightning speed. There are so many immunotherapeutics out there in the market today, and we don't know if they are useful or harmful. And I think this trial really brings it out together that the two negative results that you pointed out, interferon was not uh, helpful in survival, did not improve survival, and the fact that these uh, the PCR was not prognostic is so important, especially in a field of melanoma where immunotherapeutics and uh, drugs are so, uh, basically, the market is getting flooded. So besides those two points, I want to still bring up the point, what was the major limitation? And I know you sort of touched on uh, on um, the under how the study was underpowered, but what was the major um, limitation of this trial that if you could point out to? So I would say that if you were to criticize the trial, it would be that that uh, it was underpowered to detect small differences in survival. You, you've hit the nail on the head there. Yet, as I have pointed out to many people, a larger sample size will not uh, make a difference materialize if there is not one. And, uh, and uh, I would take this, that's why we don't use just one piece of evidence. That's why we have the landmark series to summarize all of the evidence. If you take this in context with uh, all of the other uh, interferon data, you come to the conclusion, this is one piece of evidence, that interferon is not uh, a very effective adjuvant therapy for prolonging overall survival. It, it, it at all different dosing regimens appears to fairly consistently have an effect on delaying the time to recurrence and improving the prolonging disease-free survival. But overall survival has been very difficult to show a reproducible survival benefit. And the, the study, uh, uh, one of the studies that did show that is, is open to a lot of criticism that 
we don't want to rehash all the old interferon debates here tonight, but um, uh, I would say that this piece of evidence, uh, although perhaps um, underpowered to, to detect small differences, showed no difference at all. As I said, the interferon-treated patients actually numerically were a little bit worse, which, which to us suggested that no sample size on earth was going to make uh, a difference in this group of patients. So it was an important piece of information for many of us. And I would just interject that melanoma is a case study, is the poster child for the value of randomized controlled trials, right? If not for properly conducted randomized trials in melanoma, we'd still be performing five centimeter wide local excisions, elective lymph node dissections, adjuvant hyperthermic isolated limb perfusions, uh, completion lymph node dissections, and, and giving uh, um, all kinds of other therapies that have subsequently been proven to be ineffective, vaccine adjuvant therapies and, and, uh, and other types of adjuvant therapy. So the value of properly conducted clinical trials in melanoma really is a great example of the power of this kind of evidence and how it, uh, it plays a dramatic role in changing what we do for patients and proving that what we do is uh, is either correct or that uh, we have some deficiencies that we need to improve upon. I think uh, I think that was going to be my closing statement when we uh, with Sunbelt uh, melanoma trial was that this was a multi-institutional translational trial that was led by like you mentioned surgical oncologists and it just really uh, emphasizes the point that when when trials randomized controlled trials are effectively implemented we can learn a lot of lessons that would be practice changing. Um, would you, um, are there any thoughts on, on this, how, how moving forward in the field of melanoma, what kind of randomized control trials do you foresee or like trials that you think should be implemented um, for the next generation of either neoadjuvant, adjuvant or surgical technique in, in the field of melanoma? So, there, the focus very clearly uh, for the future is defining uh, neoadjuvant approaches, uh, immunotherapy and, and targeted therapy, uh, com and combinations of immune checkpoint inhibitors and other immunotherapy, uh, as well as targeted therapy, how to sequence them, how to combine them, how to use, find additional targets, uh, whether neoadjuvant therapy is the best best approach for patients with resectable disease, um, and uh, and and improving the results for patients with uh, with uh, more advanced disease in terms of stage four uh, melanoma, but the tools we have now uh, we have some very effective tools. Uh, a lot of the work is going on to figure out how do we best use those tools. When is the best time to use targeted therapy as opposed to immunotherapy? Uh, when is it best to consider combination of targeted therapy and immunotherapy? When is it best to use single agent immunotherapy? Uh, how do we use gene therapy? Uh, TVEC, uh, uh, oncolytic uh, virus injected into uh, intratumorally into patients. Is there an effect of that along with immune checkpoint inhibitors. 
Um, so a lot of, of questions uh, that remain. And, uh, you know, I, I would say that, uh, you know, clinical trial uh, opportunities in the field of melanoma are, are, are going to be uh, rampant and, can, and they are now. And this is an advertisement for surgeons to be involved in adjuvant therapy trials. Remember, adjuvant therapy is, is therapy that's given after you've cut out all the cancer. Neoadjuvant is, uh, uh, you know, uh, a fancy word that somebody made up to, for, for preoperative treatment. Uh, but neoadjuvant therapy is when you give it before you cut the cancer out. But neither, either way, that means these are our surgical patients. We're gonna cut the cancer out and trying to try to prevent it from coming back. So in, in all areas where the treatment involves surgery and adjuvant therapy, there are questions that need to be answered. Sometimes the simplest question that's right before our eyes that no one's trying to answer or hasn't effectively answered. These are opportunities for uh, young surgeon scientists to become involved and think about these questions and how you would answer it. I happen to have been prevented, presented with an opportunity to think about and try to answer some questions in melanoma early in my career, but those same types of questions abound in every disease site and cancer. And, uh, and you can have an immediate impact by being involved in trying to, uh, to ask and figure out how to answer those questions because some of the adjuvant therapy and other questions that are, are pertinent to our patients uh, may be different. We may frame the questions differently than our colleagues in medical oncology and radiation oncology, or we may have substantial uh, additional benefit to be added with the insights that we have from not just operating these patients, but following them forever. Uh, furthermore, the opportunities to become involved with a correlative studies, translational studies, tissue, blood, patient data, to learn about the biology of disease, to learn about the immunology of cancer. Uh, these are all great ways for surgeon scientists to become involved uh, that can immediately be translated into a patient's a patient benefit uh, uh, by virtue of your, your involvement in these uh, types of trials and, and activities. So uh, for me, I, I would just use this as an opportunity to promote uh, young surgeons becoming interested in doing translational science, clinical trials, and thinking about if you had a clinical trial to design, what would it be and how would you design it? How would you answer that question? Because if once you define the question, um, you have an opportunity to figure out how you would get the answer, whether that's from uh, translational laboratory studies, whether that's from a, a, a randomized controlled trial, phase three trial, whether it's from a, a, a non-randomized uh, study that's, that's a, a well-conducted registry or, or other types of data that can be obtained. These are all great uh, uh, opportunities for us to advance the field. You have no idea how many times on our podcast we bring up the topic of being a surgeon scientist and how that, you know, those numbers are dwindling. And I think what you said should be a huge motivation because um, I think that surgeons are really um, 
at a really good vantage point, we have access to patients and their patient tissue, which is of prime, prime value. And to learn from their tumors is, um, you know, we're poised uh, basically to like um, study these and like you said, learn the tumor biology. And I feel like every time you take someone to the operating room and you're not using that tissue to learn from it um, is, is a missed opportunity. So thank you so much for that plan. And I really hope that inspires um, our listeners. Along the same lines, uh, this is a great transition to talk about our next trial. Um, We're going to talk about the neoadjuvant systemic therapy, NAST, for stage 3 melanoma patients. And this was a potential paradigm shift in management. Uh, So Dr. McMasters, um, can you give us a very brief overview of what this um, what this landmark series um, is getting to. So I think before we get to neoadjuvant, we should at least talk briefly about adjuvant therapy and, and how we got to neoadjuvant. Absolutely. So after interferon that we just talked about, uh, there was a EORTC trial led by uh, Lex Egermont that looked at uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor, CTLA-4 inhibitor, ipilimumab as an adjuvant therapy compared to placebo and showed the first convincing evidence of an effective adjuvant therapy survival advantage in melanoma for ipilimumab. What was the problem with that trial? The problem was toxicity. Ipilimumab was given at the the higher dose, 10 milligrams, uh, and the toxicity was difficult. People, some patients died from autoimmune toxicity. Perforated colon from colitis is, is a particular problem. So for all of you out there, for all these patients that you see who are on immunotherapy, remember they come in the emergency room in the middle of the night on Saturday night and they have uh, abdominal pain, diarrhea, bloody diarrhea perhaps, and you treat them with antibiotics for uh, diverticulitis or something and they needed steroids. It's, it's a lesson everybody needs to know. But the toxicity was perhaps prohibitive, although it really uh, showed a promising uh, and convincing benefit for ipilimumab. So next uh, uh, came along PD-1 inhibitors, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, adjuvant therapy trials that showed very convincing uh, uh, survival advantage for PD-1 inhibitors with much less toxicity. And then BRAF uh, inhibitors for patients with an activating mutation in BRAF, V600E, or K, or other activating mutations. Uh, BRAF with MEK inhibitors as a, as a, a potent uh, adjuvant therapy option. So now we had targeted therapy. So remember where we were, what, at, what systemic therapy in melanoma looked like in, when I was, uh, well, not very many years ago, from the time that I first learned about melanoma till just uh, you know, five or six years ago. What did we have? DTIC, decarbazine, with a 15, 15% response rate, no survival advantage. It was futile therapy and we knew it. High dose uh, interleukin-2, basically septic shock without the infection, put the patients in the ICU, give them high dose IL-2. A couple percent of patients might have a, a complete response that was durable, but it didn't help the majority of patients. Systemic uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy regimens, accommodations that just added more toxicity with absolutely no more benefit than DTIC. Then my favorite was biochemotherapy, 
five nasty drugs, throw the kitchen sink at these patients, this witch's brew of interferon, interleukin-2, and three nasty chemotherapy drugs. The treatment toxicity was horrendous. If the patients survived it, maybe two or 3% had durable, long-term, complete responses. And that was the state of the art in melanoma systemic therapy. And what did we do in adjuvant therapy? We had interferon and people were using all kinds of things that were unproven vaccines that turned out to be harmful in some cases, detrimental when subjected to the rigors of clinical trials, not just placebo uh, in some cases. Uh, uh, GMCSF, that was all the rage for a while, given off protocol based upon non-randomized data that subsequently really was disproven. So we had nothing. And now we have all these tools at our disposal. So uh, Drs. Spillane and Vanikoy in the uh, uh, Melanoma Landmark series wrote a very nice uh, uh, and, and very informative article about the uh, neoadjuvant therapy for melanoma. And it really highlights a progression of, of thought and evidence um, in saying, what do we do with patients with resectable uh, stage three palpable nodal disease and resectable oligometastatic stage four disease? We know that there's a survival advantage that surgery benefits and cures some of these patients. Palpable stage three patients, maybe 30, a third of those patients, 30% might be alive and well in five years if you just do surgery. Stage four patients, depending upon which studies you look at, 20%, up to 40% in highly selected stage four patients uh, that are resected uh, can be alive in five years, but that's not good enough. And, and uh, the idea, that we could give neoadjuvant immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, and have patients that would we be able to select patients who respond to therapy and and maybe have um, uh, different outcomes than the somewhat abysmal results of surgery alone. Is that really better to give neoadjuvant therapy as opposed to giving to doing surgery and then doing uh, adjuvant therapy with PD-1 inhibitors and or uh, or uh, BRAF MEK inhibitors. These are questions that still, you know, largely remain to be answered. But what we know is that you can take patients, for example, with uh, resectable stage three and four disease, give them immune checkpoint inhibitors, whether it be a single agent uh, PD-1 inhibitor or what appears to be the the preferred combination of low-dose ipilimumab. Uh, along with a PD-1 inhibitor, have a very high rate of complete responses and near near complete responses, and that those patients who have complete pathologic complete responses or near complete responses do extremely well, have a low chance of recurrence. It seems to predict those patients who will do well. The same thing holds true uh, for patients with an activating mutation in BRAF, if you give them neoadjuvant therapy with BRAF and MEK inhibitors. So we use targeted therapy now, pills that people take, it's not standard chemotherapy, or immunotherapy. In the lexicon of the uh, melanoma medical oncologist, uh, the word uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy are, are hardly ever used anymore. We don't, and, and, and uh, you know, radiation therapy, except for perhaps uh, brain metastases is rarely used. The treatment for, we got gene therapy, we've got immunotherapy, and we have targeted therapy. 
BRAF inhibitor with MEK inhibitor, those patients who have a complete response or a near complete response also seem to do extremely well, although there's at least suggestion from some of the trials that a pathologic complete response to targeted therapy, as many as of, of us suspected, may not be as durable as having and uh, a complete response to immunotherapy because of the enduring nature of the immune response when properly trained. So uh, there's a lot of promise here with using neoadjuvant approaches for those patients with that more advanced melanoma, but that's all developed as a result of uh, our progress in a standard, a steady progression of evidence from adjuvant therapy trials. But what neoadjuvant studies allow us to do is to learn about the biology of the disease and about the immunology of melanoma to be able, perhaps in the future, to make progress in saying, what do we do, for example, I have patient like this, uh, patients like this right now, uh, uh, several. Patients been on, uh, uh, presents with uh, iliac nodal disease, bulky lymph nodes. Sure, it would be nice to shrink those lymph nodes. Am I really going to help her with surgery? Should I just do a, a, a iliac and obturator and a lymph node dissection and superficial angular lymph node dissection to give adjuvant therapy? Uh, should we uh, give BRAF MEK, BRAF MEK inhibitors uh, uh, as neoadjuvant therapy? Should we use immunotherapy? And if we do, what should we use? Should we use uh, a single agent PD-1 inhibitor? Should we use a combination of ipilimumab uh, along with uh, a PD-1 inhibitor? Should we use, subject of another clinical trial, uh, when injectable, uh, TVEC uh, uh, gene therapy along with PD-1 inhibition? Is this an effective uh, strategy? Um, and then let's say the patient has a major response, appears to be having a complete response. Do I do a lymph node dissection? When do I do a lymph node dissection? And, or can I just watch that patient and maybe she'll be one of the ones who has a durable pathologic complete response and never needs surgery. What about the extent of surgery? Do I need to do a superficial and deep lymph node dissection, give this patient lymphedema at least half of the time with increased risk of wound complications? Or can I just go pluck out the known lymph node that was positive before neoadjuvant therapy that we can mark? These are the subjects of a lot of intensive thoughts and investigation in the world of neoadjuvant therapy. I'd like to pivot now, Dr. McMasters, to the last landmark series paper on melanoma that we wanted to discuss today. Uh, that was the, the landmark trials regarding surgical management of lymph nodes. Uh, there's some real classics here that frequently come up during rounds, morning report, or education day. Papers like MSLT1, MSLT2, and DCOG. Can you distill these landmark papers for us? Sure. So doctors uh, Bello and Ferries have written a very nice landmark series article that review uh, the uh, evidence uh, for sentinel lymph node biopsy in the uh, MSLT1, MSLT2, and, and DCOG uh, uh, clinical trials that I would recommend uh, to you. So back about 1989, Dr. Donald Morton, who deserves full credit for the brilliant idea of sentinel lymph node biopsy, 
Dr. Morton was a big, uh, the late Dr. Morton was a very uh, uh, tall, imposing man who who used to tell us uh, at many surgical meetings that I went to, he'd pound his fist on the podium and say the best treatment for surgery, best treatment for melanoma at every stage of the disease is surgery, surgery, and more surgery. You know, and at the time he was right. That was the best treatment that we had. Uh, but Dr. Morton, to his great credit, he never gave up at, as, a, as an investigator. At one time, he was the, the highest funded investigator at the NIH. Uh, uh, he conducted a series of clinical trials to test dogma, to test his beliefs, and to put them through the rigors of clinical trials. So he had a vaccine developed at the John Wayne Cancer Institute. And the non-randomized data looks spectacular. Patients went to the John Wayne Cancer Center to get this vaccine for years. It was they were treated off protocol, but he followed those patients and learned from them, did studies on them, and eventually did randomized clinical trial that showed that his vaccine didn't work. Uh, it takes courage to be able to you know, subject your ideas and, and prove or disprove them and honestly report those kind of results. Uh, undaunted, Dr. Morton had more than one good idea. He had a lot of them. And in 1989, I believe it was, he was trying to get these experiments in cats with, uh, uh, lymph, with blue dye looking at lymphatic channels and sentinel lymph nodes, get this paper published the first article on sentinel lymph node biopsy and apparently had difficult had it rejected from uh, the first journal he submitted it to and nobody really believed that this would be true for years we had done lymphocinograms where we inject radioactive tracer in the skin around the melanoma site and take a, a nuclear medicine scan to show us where the where the lymphatic drainage was the purpose was at that time way back when to decide if the patient had a truncal melanoma let's say and we were planning on doing an elective lymph node dissection which lymph nodes to dissect. So if the patient had a melanoma in the middle of their back, we might see drainage to both axillas and patients might get a bilateral axillary dissection. And, and during those studies, people would see that the tracer injected around the melanoma, it, it traveled to what appeared to be a couple of lymph node or two in the nodal basin. And why nobody until Dr. Morton really put together two and two that well, maybe that's the lymph node where the cancer is going to go first. And we could take that out and test it for cancer, and we don't have to take all the lymph nodes out. Well, I did it with blue dye, did it with radioactive tracer, did it with both, and believe it, believe it or not, it works. It always seems like a miracle to me every time I show one of the medical students, you know, this blue lymphatic channel leading into this lymph node, and we're going to take it out, and that's going to be where the cancer is if it's going to be anywhere. Yet. It works, and it works in breast cancer, and it works in melanoma, and it works in, in other areas as well. So Dr. Morton then asked some other important questions. So MSLT1, does sentinel lymph node biopsy improve survival? Big study, big multi-institutional, multinational randomized clinical trial to randomize patients to either wide local excision alone or wide local excision along with sentinel lymph node biopsy. Pretty simple idea. Does sentinel lymph node biopsy, by identifying the patients who have cancer in their sentinel node, and then those patients subsequently all got a completion lymph node dissection. Remember, these patients largely didn't get any adjuvant therapy in this trial back then. 
Did that improve survival? We had evidence from the intergroup melanoma, melanoma trial that maybe these patients, that some patients would benefit from early lymph node dissection. So it was a valid clinical question. What were the results? No difference in overall survival. You can't conclude from the MSLT1 study that there's any difference in survival for doing a sentinel node biopsy. It's an outstanding staging procedure to determine whether or not patients have cancer in their lymph nodes. And the other thing that it does, it's an excellent procedure for regional nodal disease control by identifying those who have positive lymph nodes. And in that trial, all the, the rest of the regional lymph nodes in that basin were removed. But uh, although we argued about whether some uh, patients uh, could benefit from early lymph node uh, uh, dissection, uh, when you look back at the trial, you say, well, it's pretty clear that sentinel node biopsy is not, not going to improve overall survival for these patients. The next question was really, when we do a sentinel node biopsy for the average melanoma patient, in Sunbelt Melanoma Trial and MSLT1, 16% of patients had a positive sentinel node. That means 84% of the patients had negative lymph nodes, yet standard of care for many years uh, was always that if we found cancer in the sentinel node, we did a completion lymph node dissection, a neck dissection, an axillary dissection, a groin dissection, and uh, obviously, there, uh, there is lymphedema for uh, associated with uh, inguinal lymph node dissection and axillary dissection. There are other complications uh, that can be associated with these procedures, and neck dissection has its own set of potential complications. Was it really worth doing these bigger lymph node dissections? Did it really benefit patients? Did it improve survival? This was a study of the MSLT2 study that Dr. Morton then launched. He didn't live long enough to see the final results of his study. But he'd be proud to know that all of his life's work really made a tremendous difference in how we treat patients with melanoma. Uh, the DCOG uh, SLT study from uh, a German study answered the same question, taking patients who had a positive sentinel lymph node and randomizing them to get a completion lymph node dissection or not to be followed closely with ultrasound uh, evaluation of the nodal basin, but no further surgery to the lymph node basin. Both studies uh, convincingly show overlapping survival curves. In other words, you can't find a shred of evidence when reviewing those two well-done clinical trials that performing a completion lymph node dissection improves survival compared to nodal observation with uh, uh, close follow-up. And for those patients who develop a nodal metastasis later, they can undergo uh, a lymph node dissection at when, once detected. In fact, these days, once we would detect the nodal metastasis, guess what treatment they would likely get? Neoadjuvant immunotherapy or targeted therapy before their completion lymph node dissection. And in some cases, we would do neoadjuvant uh, therapy as primary therapy for patients who have a complete response and, and just follow them if they don't have any signs of progression. Uh, and so we've gone from where surgery, surgery, and more surgery are the only treatments for melanoma to the point based upon Dr. Morton and many colleagues, Dr. Balch and, and, and many others around the world uh, who have, who have uh, contributed to our knowledge of melanoma where melanoma is, uh, is truly not just for surgeons anymore. This is a disease where I find myself as the melanoma surgeon within the 
unenviable position for the past many years of arguing with my medical oncologists for why they should be giving immunotherapy or targeted therapy instead of me doing surgery. And uh, I'm firmly convinced that this we're on the right track and this is the right thing to do for patients. I think that very beautifully sum- summarizes and kind of circles us back into our first uh, trial, you, how uh, we need to pr- prove and disprove um, our therapeutics and the way we manage these patients with melanoma and how these um, the adjuvant, new adjuvant therapies, along with the surgical techniques of take lymph node dissection, all interwine uh, in order to uh, take care uh, and manage our patients with melanoma. Uh, thank you so much. I think that was a very, very great summarized version of the landmark series of melanoma. Uh, we really appreciate you taking time and thank you for a great, great episode. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.